This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 13th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Will Steffen about the updated Planetary Boundaries Framework. We'll also speak with Jenna Jambeck about the growing problem of plastic debris in the ocean. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for a daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Our first story concerns the body-snatching reproductive strategy of a parasitic wasp, which turns a hapless lady beetle into both a feed bag and a bodyguard for her offspring. Tell me how this morbid relationship works, Dave. (laughs) It's fairly gruesome. This is a green-eyed wasp known as Dinocampus coccinellae. And what it does is it lays its eggs in ladybugs. The eggs develop, the larvae begin eating the the ladybug's organs. And what's really interesting, especially for the purposes of the study, is at some point, right as the larvae is actually getting ready to leave, the ladybug becomes paralyzed. It just sort of sits there and twitches, and this twitching sort of scares off predators, which in effect turns a ladybug into a babysitter because it makes sure that the larvae isn't eaten by some other animal. And the question has been for scientists, what is paralyzing the ladybug, and why does it only happen at this very specific stage? of larval development. And now they think they have the answer? They do. What they did was they actually scanned the brains of infected ladybugs for foreign RNA. They were looking for the presence of a virus or some sort of invader. And indeed, they did find a virus that they called DCPV, which is actually a relative of the polio virus. And this is really exciting because it suggests that the wasp is somehow using this virus to effectively turn the ladybug into a zombie. Now, do they still have to conclusively show that this virus is causing this behavior? Right. Yeah, they don't have the definitive proof. They don't have the smoking gun, as one of the experts uh, says in the story. But they do have some compelling correlations. It seems like when When the wasp first lays its egg in the ladybug, the virus builds up in the brain cells of the ladybugs, but it sort of lies dormant for a little while. And it's only when the larvae is about to leave the ladybug that the virus becomes more active. It seems to stimulate the ladybug's immune system. And actually, the ladybug's immune system starts attacking 
its own brain cells, which seems to cause this paralysis. What's really remarkable is even after the ladybug is sort of eaten from the inside, gets this sort of paralyzing brain damage, about a quarter of them actually can recover a month later. So unlike a lot of parasitic strategies, this one doesn't always kill its host. Wow. And as weird as zombified ladybugs sound, there are actually lots of examples of mind control by parasites out there, right, Dave? Right. There is a very famous example of ants being turned into zombies by a fungus. And one of my favorite examples is a single-celled organism called Taxoplasma gondii, which actually infects rodents and eliminates their fear of cats. And then the rodents get eaten by cats, and the cats pick up the parasite. It's this really interesting strategy a parasite uses to sort of maintain itself in the food chain. So this strategy by the wasps is just the latest in a long line of really cool and sort of freaky modes of parasitism. Fun to think about, huh? That's right. Our next story could be a possible boon to medicine. A girl had a well-documented genetic immune disorder back in the 1960s that usually leads to lifelong health problems. But she crossed paths with medical researchers again recently and is doing just fine. What happened, Dave? This is one of my favorite stories so far of the year, and I know the year is still a little bit young, but it's this real interesting scientific oddity. And what happened is that this girl had this really, really rare genetic condition known as wind. It's a problem with the immune system, and it's not necessarily fatal, but can cause warts on the skin and the genital areas, and it can sometimes turn cancerous. There's only a handful of patients that have been identified with it. What's interesting in this case is this woman was the first identified case of this back in 1964, and a couple of years ago, she uh, went to visit some scientists because she was concerned that she had passed on this genetic defect to her daughters. And while the scientists were talking to her and asking her about how she was doing, she was now 59 years old and she was only about six when her condition was diagnosed, she said she was feeling fine. And the scientists got really intrigued. Well, how is she fine if she has this really rare, very problematic immune disorder? And they started doing some genetic scans on her. And what they found out is that the gene that had been recently identified that causes WIM, which is known as CXCR4, seemed to have been obliterated in some of her cells. Okay, so what do they think happened to this gene? Well, the gene is on chromosome 2. And when scientists started looking at her cells, especially her white blood cells, they found that one copy of chromosome 2 was about 15% shorter than the other. And significantly, the part that was missing was missing this defective version of CXCR4, which seems to be responsible for this WIM disease. And what's really interesting is that they think that maybe 20 years ago, a chromosome in one of her blood stem cells shattered, eliminating the defective version of this gene. And the stem cell, which gives rise to a lot of other cells in the body, began replicating. And essentially what happened is these new, much healthier cells that were lacking this defective gene took over and eliminated the defective cells. And the woman basically experienced this spontaneous cure of her disease. And they now have a name for this chromosomal shattering. Yeah, it's called chromothrip. And what's cool is they think that this actually may be playing a role in other diseases as well. You know, scientists usually think that chromothripsis can cause cancer. But now that they've got this really interesting example, there have been other examples of rare diseases in the medical literature that have, for whatever reason, spontaneously cured themselves. And now researchers want to investigate some of those and see whether chromosome shattering may have played a role. 
Our final story today takes us three miles up the slopes of the Peruvian Andes to what you'd think would be untouched wilderness, but ice cores taken from a glacier there reveal a different story. What's hiding under the ice, Dave? <laughs> well, Suzanne, this is a glaciated area known as the Calcaya Ice Cap. Um, and as you mentioned, scientists have taken some ice cores from this. And what's really cool is they found that over hundreds of years, particles in the air have become trapped in various layers of this cap, allowing scientists to reconstruct sort of a history of what's been floating in the air around South America for the last several hundred years. And what was floating in the air, Dave? Well, it turns out a lot of pollution People were mining and smelting copper in South America as early as the year 1400. And then the Incas introduced the smelting of silver ore, which contains lead in the 15th century. So even back more than 600 years ago, you had these pollutants entering the air. And the researchers found traces of these metals in the ice core. What's more, they found an interesting correlation when the Spanish colonized South America in the 16th century. That's when air pollution really seems to have taken off, according to this ice core. The main culprit was probably this gigantic silver mine in Potosi, Bolivia, which exploited the planet's largest deposit of silver in the colonial period, releasing unprecedented levels of lead and other metals into the atmosphere, which again got trapped in this ice core. So the researchers have this really fascinating calendar of pollution that stretches back a long time, especially in this region of the world. So going back to the Incas, they were actually doing enough smelting to put out a significant amount of pollution then. That's right. And what's interesting about this is we really think about pollution as a product of the Industrial Revolution, the late 18th century, where we started to have factories and a lot of smoke and other pollutants belching into the air. What is really interesting about this study is it suggests that long before this period in human history, we were also releasing a significant amount of pollution into the air. And that's interesting because researchers talk about us entering this era they're calling the Anthropocene, which basically means that we're entering this period of Earth's history where humans, for the first time, are starting to have dramatic impacts on the climate. And a lot of people are saying the Anthropocene really begins with the Industrial Revolution. Well, this study suggests that in particular parts of the world, it may have started to actually happen hundreds of years before that. And I'll be talking to Will Steffen in our next segment about the Anthropocene. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about where the pop in popping popcorn comes from, just what it is that makes that sound or causes that sound to be made. <laughs> also some insights into why women who are severely obese have problems with fertility. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why a satellite first proposed by then Vice President Al Gore in 1998 is finally being launched. Also a story about why a National Institutes of Health proposal to create grants for aging scientists is generating controversy. And this week, we're also reporting from the AAAS meeting in San Jose, California. We'll be covering breaking news from the meeting, as well as doing interviews and Q&As with prominent scientists. Also, we'll be running a video series, a six-second video series, asking participants and all of you online, if you could send one message into space, what would it be? So be sure to check out all of our stories and our coverage from the annual AAAS meeting on our site. Thanks, Dave. You definitely want to check that out at news.sciencemag.org. David Grimm is the editor for our daily news site. I'm Suzanne Bard.
Next, before the 20th century, human-induced environmental change could profoundly influence human lives on a local and regional scale, but rarely on a global scale. Today, the actions of humans undeniably resonate across the planet. In this week's issue of Science, Will Steffen discusses the efforts of scientists to define what they call the Planetary Boundaries Framework, a safe operating space within which humanity can still thrive on Earth. Humans have always had an influence on the environment ever since we evolved about 200 or 250,000 years ago. But until very recently, the evidence shows that that impact, that effect on the environment has been at much smaller scales than the global. It's obviously been at the local scale, even back when we were hunter-gatherers, when we hadn't invented agriculture yet. But even until quite recently, the impacts have been at the local or at most the regional scale. We see very little impact at the global scale. That started to change, of course, with the Industrial Revolution. Up until that time, we by and large depended on our own muscle power and that of our domestic animals like oxen and horses for the energy we used. But with the advent of the Industrial Revolution and the widespread use of fossil fuels, that changed quite dramatically. And that allowed humans to increase in number and to become much more powerful. But interestingly, the real rupture point was not the start of the Industrial Revolution in the late 1700s. It was around 1950. And what we see there is a remarkable explosion of human activity after the Second World War. And that includes vast changes in technologies, a huge increase in the use of fossil fuels, much more consumption. And for the first time, we see widespread impacts at the global level. So previously, the Earth as an entire system was not really threatened by human activity. But since about 1950, we are now actually threatening the stability of the state of the entire Earth system. So that is why today is much different from previous times in human history. Can you describe what the Planetary Boundaries Framework is and why it's been updated? So the framework rests on a couple of really important scientific principles. One is that when you look back in time at how the Earth has changed, particularly back the last 10,000 years or so, you see that we've been in an unusually warm, stable period. Geologists call it the Holocene. It's only during this period that humans have developed agriculture, villages, cities, and eventually the complex of societies that we enjoy today. So the planetary boundaries framework makes the assumption based on this scientific observation that we want to maintain the Earth in a state that's similar to the Holocene because we care about the environment that humans need to thrive and prosper. The second key point is that the Earth actually operates as a single complex integrated system. So we don't talk about Earth systems in the plural, we talk about the Earth system in the singular. And when we look back again in the long-term history of Earth, we see that it exists in quite different states in terms of its environment. Very hot states when the dinosaurs were around, very cold states when it was almost all frozen over. And it can shift between these states when some forcing factor, be it a meteorite or something else, triggers a change. So the second point is that human activities have now become so large, so profound, that they are starting to push the Earth system out of the Holocene state. The planetary boundaries then are a set of a small number of boundaries that define the state of the Earth system, and we're trying to define points beyond which the risk of 
flipping the Earth into another system is very large. The Planetary Boundaries Framework was first published in 2009 after a group of scientists got together, looked at these two major issues, the state of the Earth system and how humans are pushing it and the need to keep the Earth in a Holocene-like state. And based on the science of the first decade of this century, published that paper. But science moves on. It improves. We learn more. And we thought that five or six years down the track, it was really important to update the boundary framework based on the most recent science. And this is exactly what we've done. It's led to some reconceptualizations of some boundaries. A good example of this is what we call biosphere integrity, which in the earlier paper in 2009 was called biodiversity loss. So we broaden that concept to talk not just about biodiversity, but about a broader integrity of the biosphere as a whole, not just the number of species, but the functions that groups of species provide for human welfare and what is required to maintain that sort of functioning. We've narrowed the zone of uncertainty around the climate boundary because now we have much more information on how the climate system is being destabilized even at the level of CO2 we see today, which is around 400 parts per million. So we judge that a safe level is about 350 parts per million, and a level that really is generating a lot of risks for human well-being would be 450 parts per million. We're about halfway through that. And already we see increases in the frequency and intensity of extreme events. We're seeing shifts in circulation patterns. We're seeing the sea level rise and so on. So even at 400 ppm, we're seeing changes that are definitely outside the Holocene pattern of variability. So this is how the planetary boundaries framework operates, the sort of information it is providing for decision makers, and the sort of updates we're doing as the scientific knowledge base on which the boundary framework is built as that knowledge base improves. Now, you've already mentioned some of the processes included in the framework. What are some of the others? Ocean acidification, deforestation on land, phosphorus and nitrogen cycles, freshwater use, and so on. And these are all important components of how the planet operates. They're all being pushed by human activity. But on their own, they probably can't flip the Earth into an entirely new state, whereas climate change and biosphere integrity on their own could flip the Earth into a new state. And when we look back in deep time, we often see that the boundaries between geological eras and epochs are typified either by a change in climate or a change in biosphere, i.e. a big extinction event, or both. So history tells us that these two are really important components of how the Earth system operates. Now, were some processes harder to determine boundaries for than others? Yeah, we've got nine boundaries, and some of them there's an enormous amount of information on. Climate change is an obvious one. There's a lot of food science underpinning that. Things like phosphorus and nitrogen, there's been a lot of work done at smaller scales. How much P and N can you add before you cause lakes to eutrophy. Scaling that up is a challenge. There are other boundaries. Biosphere integrity is a good one. We really don't know how to get good indicators for that, and we don't know how much we can erode biosphere integrity before we get into trouble in terms of the functions and services that the biosphere provide for humans. So that's an area, in contrast to climate, where we need a lot more information. So our boundaries there are more tentative. They have larger zones of uncertainty, but they're starting us on the pathway and hopefully triggering more research that's going to help us set better boundaries in the future. There's another one I should mention, and that's what we call novel entities. And in very simple terms, that's just new stuff that humans are throwing into the Earth system. 
The classic example are chlorofluorocarbons, the CFCs that cause the ozone hole. Those were thought to be harmless chemicals, and in fact it was a surprise that suddenly we saw that they were causing a big environmental problem way up in the stratosphere. But we're pouring all sorts of chemicals into the environment. Many of them are now tested for human toxicology, but they're not tested for their impacts on the global environment. That's still an unknown. Other sorts of new materials are genetically modified organisms, nanoparticles, all types of plastics, and so on. And for almost all of these, we have no idea of how they're going to affect how the planetary environment operates, but yet they're now becoming widespread around the globe, some of them. Here we cannot yet even suggest a boundary because our knowledge base isn't good enough. The principle of planetary boundaries, in a way, is really simple. You don't want to push the planet so far that you destabilize your own life support system. In a nutshell, that's what it is. On some aspects of the planetary environment, on the Earth system, we have good understanding, like climate change. On others, we don't. So we want to get the framework in place, and as science improves, we want to periodically improve the framework as we go along. Now, this seems like an extremely important document for guiding management and policy. Who's the intended audience? Well, we hope that there are a variety of audiences for work like this, because it's clear that we are destabilizing your system, and it's in all societies' benefit that we don't do that. So who are the important people? Obviously, uh, governments around the world are important because they make a lot of decisions that govern the way our economies work, the way technology develops, and so on. But increasingly, of course, the private sector, as we become even more globalized, is really very important too. They operate across national boundaries. Big companies do. They're important in terms of developing technology, in terms of accessing resources, and, of course, in terms of generating pollution. One point I do want to make about the national level in terms of governments is that the scientific basis for the planetary boundaries framework is the Earth as a single integrated system. So it can't easily be broken down into national boundaries. In fact, the Earth doesn't work that way. Political boundaries between nations were set up for different reasons, not for reasons of how the Earth system operates. So ultimately, we're going to need new institutions to deal with this at the planetary level. And, of course, we don't have this yet, and this is going to be one of the big challenges. So we hope that governments are listening to what planetary boundary science is saying. We hope that it provides a practical framework on which to start building institutions and organizations that can manage our relationship with the environment. And we also hope, of course, that the private sector also take note. In fact, we're very encouraged that groups like the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, which is a body of many of the biggest globalized countries in the world, are indeed actively getting involved in the planetary boundaries framework and talking about what their responsibility is and how they can respond to it. So it's early days yet, but the signs are very encouraging, and hopefully we can work together on how it might be actually implemented. And average people who care about our future on this planet often feel somewhat powerless to do anything about the environment. What would you most like them to know about the Planetary Boundaries Framework? At the individual level, I hope that people do get interested in and engaged with the Planetary Boundaries Framework. It's not because you're going to solve the question of humans pushing the Earth system out of its stable domain at the individual level by taking individual actions, important though they may be. It's because almost all of us now live in some form of a democratic system. So people actually have a voice in what their governments do. They periodically elect, re-elect, or throw out governments and put in new people. So we have a chance, individuals, 
by becoming aware of big important issues like the planetary environment and ways you might manage it like the planetary boundaries framework and use that knowledge when they vote, when they lobby their politicians to put pressure on. People can have a say in changing the course of their countries. It's happened many times in the past. So individuals are important and having a well-informed public is absolutely essential to having a healthy democracy in the 21st century so that wise decisions are made and appropriate information is conveyed to their political leaders that people want action to protect the planet for their children and grandchildren. Well, that's very encouraging. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Will. It's my pleasure, and I've enjoyed the conversation. Will Stefan and his colleagues update the Planetary Boundaries Framework this week in science. Next, one of the novel entities Stefan and his colleagues discuss in their paper is plastic debris in the ocean, which is increasingly becoming a problem for marine life as well as human health. In another science paper this week, Jenna Jambeck and her colleagues estimate the extent of the problem. Some of the documented effects of plastic in the ocean are ingestion, entanglement, and most recently people are examining the absorption of contaminants to plastic and potential impacts to the food web. And for this paper, your team looked at the amount of plastic waste entering the ocean from 192 coastal countries. What determined which countries were the biggest contributors to marine debris? So we found that in 2010, there's 8 million metric tons of plastic entering the oceans from these 192 countries. This is equal to five plastic grocery bags filled with plastic for every foot of coastline in the world. Wow. The largest contributors, I guess, to this input are places where you either have a high waste generation rate or a high coastal population and or a high rate of mismanaged waste. All of those contribute to this input. Contributions to this waste stream vary. What were some of the factors that influenced that? So what we're finding is that countries that are in rapid economic development, waste management infrastructure is sometimes left to one of the last items to be addressed in development. Oftentimes, as engineers and as societies, we will address acute matters like clean drinking water. And so sometimes waste can sort of get pushed to the side until later. And we're seeing a lot of middle-income countries that are developing that just haven't been able to address the waste management infrastructure problem yet. In well-developed countries or in countries with well-developed waste management infrastructure, they're very much influenced by the quantity of waste generated. And the United States is the only high-income country to be in the top 20 list of our countries. And that really is a function of two things. One is the large coastal population and the other is the large waste generation rate. And the EU taken together would also be in the top 20. And you make predictions for the year 2025 with respect to marine debris. What are these predictions? So the increase for 2025 is twofold, but the cumulative input in that year based upon an annual input from our calculations is 20-fold. So it's an order of magnitude increase. Wow, that's a lot. And what should be done by nations to address this problem? So I think simply what is critical is to capture the waste before it enters the environment. But it's not 
quite as simple as that. We need to look at, I think, culturally, socially, and economically appropriate solutions, right? So it's not going to be one size fits all, but the main goal would be to capture the waste. And then we also, it will be important what we do with it. And then finally, I think there's definitely areas where we can look at reducing our plastic waste generation. Now, average citizens can take a part in helping out. You have a new app called Marine Debris Tracker, is that right? So Marine Debris Tracker is a tool that can be used by anyone in the world. And in just a few clicks on this app, you can tell us about any litter, whether it be on the coastline or inland in your community, Tell us about that, and it'll give us the location of that litter anywhere in the world. And how can people access this app? It's available for iPhone and Android platforms, and so all you have to do is go to your app store and search for Marine Debris Tracker, and you'll find it. And have you started collecting data yet? We have. We have over 400,000 items in our database, and we've had about 12,000 downloads and it's being used by citizen scientists and just casual beachgoers as well. All right. Sounds like a great thing to download if you have an interest in helping out with this. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Jenna. Thank you so much for your interest in this work. Jenna Jambeck and her colleagues write about plastic waste in the ocean this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.